Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From The Verge, they're telling us to buckle up because El Nino is almost here and it's going to get real hot. Basically, what we can expect is the next five years are almost guaranteed to be sweltering. I guess the good news is almost is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that (laughs) sentence because, you know, statistics, especially when forecasting weather, it's... A dicey proposition, but they're saying there's a 98% chance that one of the next five years will be the warmest on record. And that's actually kind of easy to say as a guarantee because the past eight years we've had have been the eight hottest since we've been keeping records. I think think 98% is generous. (laughs) I'm willing to go higher. I'm a gambler. Right, right. But, you know, it's happening everywhere. Uh, We had a record-smashing heat wave in July of last year that the notoriously cool and cloudy UK, they had temperatures going above 40 degrees Celsius for the first time, which researchers thought was a virtually impossible event Mm. without climate change, of course. So all of that went down despite what was going on at the time, which were the mitigating effects of a rare and unusually long lasting triple dip La Nina. So We've actually been having it pretty good, <laughs> according to this research. Oh, good. Because, yeah, La Nina has been unusually long, lasting from September 2020 until March of this year. And it kind of works as an opposite of El Nino. La Nina is a weather pattern that has a cooling effect on the planet. So right now, La Nina nor El Nino, nothing's happening on either of those fronts. But we do have trade winds over the Pacific Ocean that are helping to push warm waters westward from South America toward Asia. And as that happens, cooler water rises from deep in the ocean towards the surface. Those trade winds weaken with El Nino, which allow water to flow back east. And the warmer water also pushes the Pacific jet stream, which is a fast-flowing air current. That one goes southward, which, in turn, influences the weather. So they're thinking it's going to last at least until the winter. So that's the stay of El Nino that we're predicting. And that's according to the National Weather Service Climate Prediction Center. It can take up to a year before El Nino starts to affect global temperatures. So really, we're going to start seeing or feeling this in 2024. And with El Nino likely to push the mercury up even higher than we've seen, now they're talking about a 66% chance that during at least one year between 23 and 2027, the average global temperature will rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, higher than the pre-industrial era. Mm. So the Paris Climate Agreement strives to keep the world from warming beyond specifically that threshold. And so far... Yeah, the planet has already warmed by about 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That's the main driver of the more extreme weather we're already seeing. Mm. And so we've got this really slim window of time to achieve that goal because the WMO predicts that the world will, quote, only temporarily overshoot the 1.5 degree target 
over the next five years. So it doesn't mean that we are going to permanently exceed the 1.5 level specified in the Paris Agreement, but we're going to be breaching it. We're going to crack it. We may come back down, but yeah, that threshold is about to get breached. And not that long ago, like in 2015, the chance of the world experiencing warming above 1.5, we were predicting that as a near 0% certainty. (laughs) So yeah, and then in 2021, the likelihood went up to just 10%. But Things are accelerating. Yeah, what I heard, because I watch the Weather Channel, which means I've officially turned into my father, (laughs) is that it's going to be a super El Nino. It's especially charged, which means for like California, Arizona, Texas, we'll be hotter, but we'll be wetter. Ooh. That doesn't sound mm. pleasant. No. I mean, unless you're a gardener, I'm ready. Bring it on. My plants are ready. Yeah, they'll be thriving while you lay dead beside them because you're <laughs> smothered under a fine inch of pollen because they've been producing so well. Right, so we might we might fill up the reservoirs a little bit, but because it's so hot, it'll just evaporate out again. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Status quo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. On that note, next link. <laughs> next link. This article comes to us from atlasobscura.com, and it's titled, To Pay Rent in Medieval England, Catch Some Eels. <laughs> oh, so, do I have to? <laughs> uh, it is an option. So, <laughs> well, it was. Not anymore. <laughs> I don't I think you can give it a shot. Yeah, you can try. Uh, what is America if not industrious insanity? That's right. right. But this is about England, and I don't know what their excuse was. Well, we'll find out. So, <laughs> John Wyatt Greenley, a medieval historian focusing on cartography, never intended to become the surprised eel historian, as he dubs himself on Twitter. When he first proposed his PhD project on eels, it was declined. He went ahead and studied eels anyway, and his passion for these worm-like elongated fish has now managed to capture the fascination of others. Greenlee specifically looks at the role eels played in medieval English economy and culture, a role far more important than many would think. Despite their former abundance, the European eel has now become a critically endangered species and is in need of a bit more love and attention. Andrew Kerr, chair of the Sustainable Eel Group, says our connection with eels has become a lost relationship. Yeah, Sustainable Eel Group, you know, I mean. I mean, everybody has a passion, and I applaud them for it. Yeah. (laughs) Greenlee says, we have a really great and complicated history with eels. Medieval land users were required to pay rent to the landowner each year, and in many cases, these rents were paid, quote, in kind. This means that they weren't paid in coins, but rather with goods such as chickens, eggs, and Greenlee's favorite, eels. The first recorded payment of rent made with eels was in 700. By the time of the Domesday Book Survey in 1086, a massive land survey conducted in England after William the Conqueror seized the island, we can see evidence for something more than half a million eels being paid in rent in England every year, according to Greenlee. Wow. That's weird that they went extinct. I don't understand how that can happen. When it comes to their numbers in comparison to other in-kind rents, Greenlee emphasizes their popularity. There are more rents paid in eels than anything else in the Domesday survey, and the question is why. Paul Friedman, a medieval historian at Yale University, explains that eels were somewhere in between a delicacy and an everyday item. The fact that people Mm. were asked to pay rent in eels shows that their landlords wanted them. Most of the eel rents were paid in East Anglia, which is really great eel territory, according to Friedman because of the numerous marshes and low-lying areas with lots of water. 
Greenlee explains that a lot of mills end up paying rent in eels, probably because they catch a lot of eels near the mill races. Mm. Monasteries and religious institutions also carried out a large number of eel transactions. Friedman says, in the Catholic world before the Reformation, there were lots of days in which you had to abstain from meat, particularly Lent before Easter. Since eels were an appropriate Lent meal, monasteries saw them as a highly sought-after commodity and collected them in droves from their tenants. Some monasteries received tens of thousands of eels in rental contractions, stockpiling the eels to then pay for their needs. One enormous transaction shows that Ellie Abbey, now known as Ellie Cathedral, paid Thorny Abbey 26,275 eels to rent a fen, (gasps) similar to a wetland, according to rare transaction records on parchment fragments held by the British Library. Oh, that's an excessive amount of eels at one (laughs) transaction, though. Yeah, I mean, how do you even transport that many? That's wagon loads. Yeah, the giant eel vault. (laughs) Right, right. A lot of salt, I guess. I don't know. So over time, the practice of paying rent with eels slowly declined. The reasons for this are unknown, besides some of the reasons we just listed. (laughs) Greenlee explains that some of it has to do with availability of money, some of it has to do with changes in habitat and ecology. In addition, the beginning of the Little Ice Age in the 14th century could have caused water bodies to become colder, leading to a reduction in eel populations. Mm. Kerr notes that measuring eel populations is incredibly difficult, and that even today eels are difficult to count, study, and understand. He ends by saying, as with everything with eels, it's complicated, which I did not know they had these reputations. But No, I think my entire knowledge of eels comes from The Little Mermaid. Like they're the henchmen (laughs) of the big bad villain lady. Like that was literally because, you know, as a kid, you don't encounter eels in the grocery store or anywhere else. So they were, yeah, they were in The Princess Bride and they were in Little Mermaid. That's how I know about eels. Yeah, and one thing that I know about eels is that some of them can electrocute you, and yeah! that is yep. very complicated. So That's true. Like, <laughs> Imagine if you just knew that some species of dogs were electric. Like, how weird would that be, you know? It is uh, pretty strange anyways, that we just accept yeah. it as a normal thing. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, it would just be a Pokemon at that point, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just electric-type animals. Um, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> so nonetheless, Friedman and Greenlee both emphasize that the Black Death may potentially be behind the shift. Hmm. The Black Death greatly altered the amount of land per capita, and Friedman explains that after the Black Death, the market was more in favor of the laborers, so lords couldn't get away with asking for extensive rents paid in kind. Mm -hmm. The survivors of the Black Death simply had a better life, and with fewer mouths to feed, people could afford to eat higher quality foods, such as lambs. Landlords shifted to sheep farming instead of more opportunistic food gathering and hunting methods, as it required less labor and could be more profitable. Whether the reduction in eel rents resulted from social changes caused by the Black Death or a decline in the eel population, so far, the truth is unclear. Greenlee hopes that his passion for eels and his research on their presence in medieval England will help get people interested in saving them. He wants to highlight the ways in which eels have been a part of our past to encourage people to think about eels as part of our present and maybe as part of our future. Greenlee, Kerr, and others hope that people might learn and therefore care a little bit more about eels, even if they're sadly no longer accepted as a way to pay your rent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I gotta say, they have a real positive spin on the Black Death as well. Like, (laughs) it's all like, there were fewer mouths to feed. Everybody got more land. It's like, that's all true. I mean, you know, they're optimists. (laughs) Hey, listen, it's inarguable. You don't have to pay rent with eels anymore. Yeah, that's that's true. Massive improvement. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. the proof is in the, the lack of eel pudding. Right, right. (laughs) Which is probably what they were doing with them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. 
All right. This comes from Science Alert. NASA, we'd have a 30-minute warning before a killer solar storm hits the Earth. Cool. You know what? That's plenty. <laughs> yeah, you could do a lot in 30 minutes unless you're stuck in traffic and then <laughs> be done. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. All right, first, we need to talk about what happens when we're hit with a solar storm. When solar matter collides with our planet at high speeds, the magnetic field deflects it towards the poles. There, it'll interact with gases, and that will create the auras that we've seen, right? The aurora borealis and stuff. Then meanwhile, the fast-moving charges create an intense magnetic field of their own, and this will induce a set of electrical currents on the ground. These currents can be strong enough to overpower whole electrical grids and destroy electronics. Hmm. And we've got this on record a few times. Around 35 years ago in Quebec, they were hit and it shut off power for hours. And then recently declassified naval documents suggest in 1972, geomagnetic storms even triggered the detonation of dozens of sea mines off the Vietnam coast. All right. Uh, And then even further back, there was an event known as the Carrington event, which happened about 150 years ago and caused massive destruction of telegraph lines and even electrocuted a few operators. Hmm. So you can imagine if it happened today, the results would be catastrophic. Just having our power off during the Texas freeze and Mm. stuff for a week made me realize just how reliant we are on Mm -hmm. it. So in my opinion, it's really what we should be using AI to do instead of drawing pictures. But Uh, fortunately, a team at NASA has been applying AI models to solar storm data to develop an early warning system that they think can give us about 30 minute lead time before a solar storm hits a particular area. How is this possible? How can we know we're getting hit before we're actually getting hit? Is light travels a little faster than the solar material ejected out by the sun. But so is there anything we can do? Or is it just like now I know for 30 minutes that everything is going to go to hell? Mm -hmm. It means that you've got a 30 minute gap before, yeah, the entire power gets shut off in your area. So like binge a couple of episodes like. (laughs) Right. Right, because also just knowing the storm is on its way is not enough. You also have to know where it's going to impact. And that's what the AI has been working on now to be able to do those models. And they want to know, too, the strength of the potential impact. So they've already gathered a bunch of data based on stations that have already been affected by other solar storms. They named their AI DAGGER. They didn't say what that stands for. I had to look it up. And it stands for, ready? Deep Learning Geomagnetic Perturbation. That is not yep. how you spell dagger. <laughs> <laughs> right. They take, the, they take the D of deep, right? They take the A and G out of learning, the Ugh. G out of geomagnetic, and the E and R from perturbation. <laughs> you know, I feel like they should study the sun more and acronyms less. Like, <laughs> Right. Or maybe these are way around. We, I don't know. Right. That's right. This is why we say don't look too close at the sun, guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it makes predictions on where a solar storm may hit and how extreme it's going to be. Do keep in mind, if you're on the side of night, you're all good. You're not oh. going to get hit. It just wraps around, right? So it's only a specific part, the day part of the Earth, that's going to get hit with that. So only half mm. the globe or, or a potential part of the globe gets hit with the worst stuff. So there's no way of stopping the solar outburst, but at least dagger is a great way forward. Yeah, I mean, it's a step. And if we can Mm -hmm. get more than 30 minutes and if you could give me a little bunker where I could put all my electronics 
then I could do something about it. You know, it's good that they know. I don't think it does right. me any good yeah. to know. <laughs> no, it's it's launching on an open source platform so that everybody can get to it. And apparently they say in the article, just in time to collect plenty of data as the sun ramps up to its peak of its 11-year solar mm. cycle in 2025. Way to bury the lead there. Uh-huh, get ready for 2025. So for me, you know, as you said, having it in a bunker or something would be nice. Or just make sure that you're making copies and putting those copies on the opposite side of the globe. Right. <laughs> Have a second home on the other side of the globe. I don't know. It's like that <laughs> movie with the train that's constantly going around. Like we need a, a plane flying on the dark side at all times just, with oh, our critical data. With our critical nuclear data and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. So you're right, because all that's at risk as well. <laughs> this sounds safer than Whee! the alternative. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah, that's all I got on that one, though. They don't have a whole lot of, like, positive spin. Just you got 30 minutes and that's it. <laughs> so. Boy, think of the false alarms on that thing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, again, a false alarm. But what are you going to be able to do? Just worry about it for 30 minutes? That's what minutes, I'm saying. It's then... just going to make everybody sad for 30 minutes. You're... Then... <laughs> Look, I can think of plenty of people who go, F it, YOLO, and just go absolutely <laughs> chaos crazy. Just turn all minutes. the lights on and bask it's in like them. It's like the supermarket sweep of your lifetime, literally. Right. Uh-huh. Right, so, yay, no more debt. <laughs> it's like, but now your debt's on the other side of the globe. Yeah, exactly. There's still a copy of that. Still a copy of your debt. So. Yeah, you better be sure they'll have backups of that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> absolutely. Next link. Next link. All right. Next up, we have this article from Quanta Magazine called "Memories Help Brains Recognize New Events Worth Remembering." And I would go so far as to call this title anti-clickbait because it's so generic and what is actually happening here is pretty crazy. I think it really deserves a better title. It does open with a great sentence, quote, memories are shadows of the past, but also flashlights for the future. Wow. But so what it's getting at there is thanks to a new study involving snails, we now understand a little more about how our memories directly affect how we view the present. And you wouldn't think snails would be a great test subject for memories, but apparently they're actually a favorite among neuroscientists for two reasons. One, a simpler brain is actually easier to understand, and a snail's brain does contain just 20,000 neurons compared to 87 billion in a human. But number two, more importantly, those 20,000 neurons are individually gigantic, about 10 times larger than ours. And that makes them a lot easier to look at and do things to. So Michael Crossley, a senior research fellow at the University of Sussex, says that forming long-term memories is actually an incredibly energy-draining process. Long-term memories require more durable connections between the synapses, so in order to use limited resources efficiently, a brain has to be able to distinguish when it's worth the cost to form a real memory and when it's not. Now, we already know that snails can form memories because you can train them in a Pavlovian way to seek out a particular source of food. But what the scientists wanted to know here was how much an old memory would affect their ability to make a new memory. So what they did was they created two conditions, strong training and weak training. In the strong training, the snails were spritzed with a banana-flavored water, so no actual sweetness, just an artificial banana flavor that the snails are pretty indifferent to. Then they were spritzed with a highly concentrated sugar solution, which they, of course, really liked. And you might ask, how do they know if a snail likes the liquid it's being sprayed with? And the answer is freaking adorable. 
They put them on a clear surface to do all these tests and then film them from underneath so they could see how much their little mouths were opening and closing to drink the liquid. <laughs> and there is video, and I highly recommend it. But so this means you can see how with the banana liquid, they'll drink a little, they'll spit some out. But with the concentrated sugar, they're just like, glug, glug, like they're num, just num, guzzling num, it num, down. I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is strong training, like I said. So what that means is if you spritz the snails again with banana water a little later, they'll immediately start drinking the next thing you put on them because they've made that association and assume that a sugary treat is coming next. Now, the weak training scenario was similar, except it used coconut-flavored water and then a very diluted sugar solution, just barely enough to be worth their time. And they didn't really learn much from that because that little bit of sugar wasn't important enough to make a long-term memory associating sugar with coconut. Now, here comes the interesting part. The researchers found that when they did strong banana training on some snails and then weak coconut training on the same snails a few hours later, those snails did remember the coconut. It was like they'd already gone to the trouble to make a memory about flavoring and sugar, so they were primed to think that another flavoring to sugar association was important, too. Hmm. They tried it in the reverse order, doing weak training, then strong training, then testing them on the coconut again, and they didn't remember. They also messed around a little bit with making the strong training coconut and the weak training banana, and it made no difference. And so the scientists concluded that the strong training pushed the snails into a learning-rich period in which the threshold for memory formation was lower. And this likely helps the brain direct its limited resources toward taking advantage of opportune moments to learn as much as possible. Because mm. finding food likely means there's more food nearby, while a brush with danger could mean you've wandered into a bad part of snail town and you need to be more alert. <laughs> but either way, the learning-rich period is relatively short, persisting no more than four hours after the strong training and sometimes as little as 30 minutes. After that, the snails stopped forming long-term memories during the weak training, and it wasn't because they had forgotten their strong training, because that memory persisted for months. Hmm. And because they're neuroscientists, they got a lot more technical about it and figured out exactly which neurons were firing and discovered that they could trigger the learning-rich period without strong training at all by blocking dopamine in their brains. So that also clearly has some implications for the human brain and how we react to dopamine and what our memories say about us. Hmm. And... Then, weirdly, things took a really dark turn right at the end here, where they mentioned that they're now planning studies on aversive stimuli to snails to see if oh. negative memories are oh. formed easier than positive ones. See, I, I was going to say, that's the nicest experiment that I've read about. <laughs> right, right. Normally, we're torturing mice, we're doing all sorts of awful things, and yeah, then it's there it was. There yeah. was, yeah, okay. But right. yeah, it might not be, like, pain. Like, they could make, like, a little snail haunted house. Like, it could just be, you know, fear. <laughs> it doesn't have to be awful. Awful. Well, I hope their results are overwhelmingly garbage so they just focus back <laughs> on the positive reinforcement because, hey, listen, it's already happened kind of in the dog training world, right? Positive, positive reinforcement, reinforcement negative right. reinforcement of training does nothing except traumatize your dog. Yeah, but I mean, that's the same of people, too. Like a negative memory is going to traumatize you to see more negativity in the world. So even if they're learning that negative memories are bad, they're still learning something, which means they're going to keep doing it. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry to bring you down about the poor snails. I know they're <laughs> <laughs> they really are cute, though. Go watch the little video of the snail. He's so happy. He's just guzzling sugar water. I mean, like, up, 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 up. It's wonderful. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. I'm going to keep us on this happy animal high. 
<laughs> Theconversation.com has an article about bees. Aww. Because, listen, they can learn, they can remember, they can think, and they can make decisions. And <laughs> we're just going to take a quick look at how they navigate the world because their populations are still in decline. Mm. I have seen, actually, personally, fewer bees this gardening season than prior years. I'm hoping it's because all of this La Nina super blooming that's happening means that they have plentiful food sources. They don't have to come to my yard. But mm. there is a plea at the end of this article to like, you know, plant some stuff for the bees, y'all. Because listen, bees are magical and they are essential to human society. They provide about one third of the food we eat, not directly, indirectly. Mm. But that is a service with a global value estimated at up to $577 billion annually. So yeah, mm. there's a money reason here to take care of them too. But they're interesting in many other ways that are less widely known. The author has studied bees for almost 50 years to explore how the creatures perceive the world, their amazing abilities to navigate, learn, communicate, and remember. So, okay, picture a bee in your mind. You are probably thinking of a honeybee, and you're probably thinking of a bee that is social, that lives in a hive or a colony with a queen, but Real talk, only about 10% of bees are social, and most don't even make honey, which is just bee barf, right? Delicious bee barf, I'd Delicious. like to say. Delicious, yeah. <laughs> perfect bee barf, yeah. I'll eat it for the rest of my life unless I get diabetes. Anyway, okay, listen, <laughs> most bees, they live solitary lives. They dig nests in the ground instead of living in hives or colonies. Hmm. Sometimes they will even find abandoned beetle burrows in dead wood to call home. Some bees are even kleptoparasites, which means they will sneak into unoccupied nests to lay their eggs in the same way that like a cowbird will lay their egg in another bird's nest and let the unknowing foster parent rear their offspring. Mm. There are even a few species of tropical bees known as vulture bees that survive by eating carrion. They actually have an acid-loving bacteria in their guts. So they can digest rotting meat. Mm. They're self-aware, according to research. They may even have a primitive form of consciousness. During the six to ten hours that bees spend asleep every day, memories are consolidated. And there are some indications that bees might even dream. The author would like to think so. And yeah, there are hyperlinks to all of these studies all over the place if you want to go deeper. But as far as how they perceive the world, it's kind of, it, it would appear very alien to us, right? So we as humans see the world through the primary colors of red, green, and blue. But for bees, the colors are green, blue, and ultraviolet, which sounds oh. like the best kind of blacklight poster experience, right? <laughs> Their vision is not as sharp as ours. It's about 60 times less sharp than us, but they can see these ultraviolet floral patterns that are invisible to our eyes. And those patterns actually work as little like landing marks to be like, hey, nectar over here. Hmm. <laughs> they can also spot flowers by detecting color changes at a distance. This one's kind of crazy. So when human beings watch film projected at 24 frames per second, that's what gets things to blur into motion and they look like they're moving. And this is called the flicker fusion frequency phenomenon. It indicates how capable our visual systems are at resolving moving images. But bees, they have a much higher flicker fusion frequency. You would have to play a film 10 times faster for it to look like a blur to them. So they can fly over a flowering meadow and see bright spots of floral color that just don't stand out to us at all. And they can also detect flowers by scent. Their sense of smell is so much better than ours. It's a hundred times more sensitive than ours, which 
really is just another data point to show how garbage our noses are <laughs> compared <laughs> to almost every other animal. But scientists have been using bees to sniff out chemicals, including chemicals associated with cancer and diabetes on patients' breath. They can even use bees to detect the presence of high explosives, which <gasps> that's just... I, I want to see a bee in the airport, like the little TSA bee that's on a leash and is just going along and letting you know if you got something in your suitcase you shouldn't have. In the Pixar movie that's to follow. Well, yeah. <laughs> Or DreamWorks. I think DreamWorks owned it. It was DreamWorks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So bees, they also have a sense of touch that is way more developed than you may think. They have the ability to feel tiny fingerprint-like ridges on the petals of some flowers. And although they may be nearly deaf to most airborne sounds, they are sensitive if they're standing on a vibrating surface. And they've got their own vibration powers of their own. Okay. So pollination. The author's favorite area of research examines a method that's called buzz pollination. And bees use it on about 10% of the world's 350,000 kinds of flowering plants that have special anthers, which are these structures that produce pollen. So think of a tomato blossom. They've got these five little anthers that are pinched together, kind of like a hand that's got closed fingers. And when a female bumblebee lands on a tomato flower, she bites one anther at the middle contracts her flight muscles from about 100 to 400 times per second. And these vibrations, they basically eject the pollen from the anthropores in the form of a cloud that strikes the bee. It's like shaking that apple tree in the cartoon to make all those apples fall down, but for pollen. And bees use this kind of buzz pollination on blueberries, cranberries, eggplant, and kiwi fruits. So yes, again, here's that plea. The bee populations are declining worldwide. We've got parasites, pesticides, habitat loss. They're just getting hammered from all sides. So you don't have to have acres of land to support bees. You can do it from an apartment window box or just a little hanging basket. But what you want to do is plant native wildflowers, the flowers that are supposed to be in the land that you occupy. And you want to try to find them when they're available in every season. So you've got blooms throughout the year to support the full life cycle, not just spring break, eat a bunch of food, go crazy, and now you're really hungry, right? And third, if you do have some open ground, keep it open. Don't plant everything because so many bees do burrow. When you see those little holes in the ground, I don't know, maybe it's a little bee. That's my excuse for not planting Mm -hmm. anything. I'm leaving burrows for the bees. You are helping the bees, Jennifer. Yeah. Very important work. I'm a good person. That's right. Next link. Next link. Well, I am continuing the animal theme, but unfortunately, it is not as fun. Mm. This article comes to us from LiveScience.com. It's titled, Orcas have sunk three boats in Europe and appear to be teaching others to do the same. Oh, dang. Yeah. Honestly, I think it is a happy article. Uh, <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. And the end of the article says, but why? And I think we know. You know, yeah. if you have to ask... Uh-uh. I mean, they're avenging the eels. Duh. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that is not the cited reason here, but orcas have attacked and sunk a third boat off the Iberian coast of Europe, and experts now believe the behavior is being copied by the rest of the population. Three orcas, also known as killer whales, struck the yacht on the night of May 4th and pierced the rudder. Skipper Werner Schaffelberger told the German publication Yacht, There were two smaller and one larger orca. 
The little ones shook the rudder at the back while the big one repeatedly backed up and rammed the ship with full force from the side. Schaffelberger said he saw the smaller orcas imitate the larger one. Mm. The two little orcas observed the bigger one's technique, and with a slight run-up, they too slammed into the boat. Spanish coast guards rescued the crew and towed the boat to Barbate, but it sank at the port entrance. Oh no! <laughs> Two days later, a pod of six orcas assailed another sailboat navigating the strait. Greg Blackburn, who was aboard the vessel, looked on as a mother orca appeared to teach her calf how to charge into the rudder. <laughs> it was definitely some form of education teaching going on, Blackburn said. He's homeschooled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reports of aggressive encounters with orcas off the Iberian coast began in May 2020 and are becoming more frequent, according to a study published in June 2022 in the journal Marine Mammal Science. Assaults seem to be mainly directed at sailing boats and follow a clear pattern, with orcas approaching from the stern to strike the rudder, then losing interest once they have successfully stopped the boat. <laughs> Co-author Alfredo Lopez Fernandez says, The reports of interactions have been continuous since 2020 in places where orcas are found, either in Galicia or in the Strait. Most encounters have been harmless, he said. In more than 500 interaction events recorded since 2020, there are three sunken ships. We estimate that killer whales only touch one ship out of every hundred that sail through a location. The spike in aggression towards boats is a recent phenomenon, though, he said. Researchers think that a traumatic event may have triggered a change in the behavior of one orca, which the rest of the population has learned to imitate. Experts suspect that a female orca, they called White Gladys, suffered a <laughs> critical moment of agony, a collision with a boat or entrapment during illegal fishing that flipped a behavioral switch. That traumatized orca is the one that started this behavior of physical contact with the boat, Lopez Fernandez said. Orcas are social creatures that can easily learn and reproduce behaviors performed by others according to the 2022 study. In the majority of reported cases, orcas have made a beeline for the boat's rudder and either bitten, bent, or broken it. Orcas appear to perceive the behavior as advantageous despite the risk they run by slamming into moving boat structures. Since the abnormal interactions began in 2020, four orcas belonging to a subpopulation living in Iberian waters have died, although their deaths cannot be directly linked to encounters with boats. The unusual behavior could also be playful, or what researchers call a fad, a behavior initiated <laughs> by one or two individuals and temporarily picked up by others before it's abandoned. I don't know. I think White Gladys is like the Braveheart dude. She's yeah. running around yelling freedom, and they're like, yes, let's do <laughs> They've this. They've had enough. SeaWorld yeah. has taken enough of their brethren. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Deborah Giles, an orca researcher at the University of Washington, said, it sounds pretty aggressive to me. Mm -hmm. And as the number of incidents grows, there's an increased concern both for sailors and for the Iberian orca subpopulation, which is listed as critically endangered by the IUCN Red List. Mm -hmm. The last census in 2011 recorded just 39 Iberian orcas, according Aww. to the 2022 Aww. study. Honestly, they just need some more help. They just need to increase their numbers. Like, I appreciate that they're going after the yachts. Those are incredibly wasteful. And listen, <laughs> I just heard that Jeff Bezos proposed to his new wife in part on the yacht by making a masked figurehead that looks just like her. I think the orcas obviously <sighs> yeah. need to target that one first. Yeah, yeah, you can pick it out. We need to oh, send yeah. them on missions 
and be yeah, like, listen, yeah. if you take this one out, we won't say anything. And you, <laughs> it's like a protection racket, you know? There you go. Yeah, special ops, killer whales. Right. They're tired of all the noise, maybe. They just oh, have yeah. enough, too, because it's noisy. Well, and especially having had the silence of 2020, like, to show them that it could be better, and then we mm-hmm. all came back. Yep. I don't blame mm-hmm. them for being like, uh-uh, no, we liked it better when you were all in your homes. And mm-hmm. Yeah, 2020 does seem like it was a, no pun intended, sea change kind of year for the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And are you, are you sure you didn't intend that pun? <laughs> uh, it came out of me. I couldn't control it. I did not intend it, but... Rushed out sort of like a wave, right? Oh, yeah, right. Exactly. Here we go. They just spill out. Yeah, you know. Okay. Uh, next link. Next link. From the conversation. You shed DNA everywhere you go, raising ethical questions about privacy. Oh, dear. Mm -hmm. Human DNA can be sequenced from small amounts of water, sand, or air to potentially extract identifiable information like genetic lineage, gender, etc. We've all seen Law & Order. We know how this goes down. (laughs) Right. Usually, this is done through direct sampling like blood tests, swabs, or biopsies. But even water, soil, and air contain microscopic particles of biologic material. DNA that an organism sheds is called environmental DNA or eDNA. And as a team of geneticists, ecologists, and marine biologists in the Duffy Lab at the University of Florida found, signs of human life can be found everywhere, but yeah. in the most isolated locations. But I'm, I'm going to say, how do they know it's not in the most isolated locations? If they went there, didn't they? Why are they leaving their DNA? Right. <laughs> right. But surely there's, they've got a way. To figure that out. So the researchers collected samples from the ground and water in Florida and Ireland. They also collected air samples from a room in their wildlife vet hospital. There they were able to recover DNA matching the people, the animal patients, and common animal viruses present at the time of collection. Sequencing DNA that volunteers left in their footprints and sand even yielded part of their sex chromosome. What? The article goes on to say human eDNA could present significant advantages to research in fields as diverse as conservation, epidemiology, and forensics and farming. And if handled correctly, allow biologists to monitor cancer mutations in a given population and isolate them. Hmm. Or allow archaeologists and sociologists to track down undiscovered human settlements and ruin them. obviously all sorts of ethical questions are raised here questions like do we really trust everyone to use this technology ethically Mm -hmm. who gets access to this tech should the info be public Mm -hmm. does anybody conducting the research study history or read science fiction Mm -hmm. (laughs) fortunately there are researchers who are on the side of rational thinking and they believe it is vital to implement regulations to ensure that the collection analysis and data storage are carried out ethically Mm -hmm. because If Facebook has taught us anything, your data will be sold unless there is a law preventing it. And even then. eh. Yeah. But also, if you can test it in the air, Mm -hmm. you could, you know, theoretically in the future have a little gadget that's just constantly monitoring the air of a room. And if someone walks in, you know, there's no way to stop yourself from shedding everything unless you've gone and put on a suit. But then your DNA's gotten on the outside of the suit while you put on like it. (laughs) It, it gets to ridiculous levels of just they will know where you are at all times mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. Right. No more need for a bloodhound. We've got right. a device that can do that, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. We'll just find you there. Well, I'm going to go rewatch Gattaca and see how Ethan Hawke dealt with it. And maybe that'll <laughs> give me some hope. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. 
Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include, I've got the best memory in the world, this eagle would eat your toddler if it had the chance, and the two-century quest to quantify our senses. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.